Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. This is our 40th episode of Weird House Cinema and our first venture into the cinema of Spain. And it's also going to be our fourth episode that jumps into a franchise with the second film. Um, (laughs) We did this with Boggy Creek 2. We did this with Trancers 2. And I guess you could make an argument that we did this with Troll 2, though, of course, Troll 2 had nothing to do with Troll 1. uh, So that's debatable. Did you actually comb through all of our titles to verify this? Well, I mean, I have a list of of episodes we've done. Oh, okay. It wasn't much combing, but I I scanned it real quick. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think you're forgetting one. What's that? The Ewok adventure movie we did was indeed a sequel. Oh my goodness, you're right. That's right, that was a sequel. Oh, and you know what? Technically, Teens in the Universe, also a sequel. So make that... Wow. This this would be, what, number six then? Um, the sixth film that we've looked at that is a sequel to another film. Um, so here we go. It's get, We're going to be talking about Return of the Blind Dead, a.k.a. Return of the Evil Dead. Also, another uh, uh, another uh, exploitation horror movie from the 70s that is badly in need of a bath. Rob, how did you <laughs> dig up this abomination? Uh, this is one I've, I've been familiar with for a while. I think I actually used to have the first two of these, the first two Blind Dead films on DVD, like ages past, and huh. lost them at some point, or uh-huh. traded them in, or gave them away, and figured I would never need to go back and watch a Blind Dead film again. Uh, and yet... As these things uh, as these things tend to, to work, eventually the the thirst returned, and I had to uh, to go out and watch these films again, or at least the the second one here. This one was a first for me in a number of ways. Uh, I I know I've seen some Spanish horror movies from the seventies before. I'm struggling to think of what they are, but I know I have. Uh, but this was the first movie that I can recall seeing that had zombies riding horseback. Yes. Yeah. This one. So, so this is, this is an interesting film from a number of different perspectives. First of all, just as a Spanish horror film, uh, we'll get into this a little bit, but it, it does have kind of an important place. It is a, a key 1970s Spanish horror film, uh, that, that ultimately had a big impact, uh, on that, on that genre and that world of, of filmmaking. It's one that also has acquired a cult following over the years. You'll see it often some, you'll see it associated with kind of, uh, I guess kind of like doom rock kind of vibes, you know, <laughs> uh, it does have like, it has several of the elements, you know, the idea of like black hooded figures riding at night, weird sounds, they have big swords. Uh, so, and yeah, it is in many respects, I mean, it is a zombie film basically, uh, but it, it has this interesting place kind of sandwiched between the, uh, like the George Romero era of zombie films with the first night of the living dead. Uh, and then, uh, bridging the way to the gorier realm of zombie films that was to come uh, both in the United States and in Europe. Yeah, I'd agree. So if you look at like Night of the Living Dead as a, I don't know, you could argue a more cerebral horror film, something that's mm-hmm. independent, original, kind of thoughtful, and is very dialogue driven, almost could function as a stage play. Right. Um, this is a little bit closer to that that full cheese zombie zone where it's it's more just about kind of like fluids coming out of people's bodies and things being really gross. <laughs> now, one of the interesting things about our experience here today is that we each watch slightly different cuts of the film. Uh, uh, then I went back and watched 
portions of the cut that you watched, mm -hmm. but the one that I watched is like a minute shorter and has a little less gore in it and is missing one crucial scene that we'll get to here in a bit. Okay. Uh, so, you, so you probably encountered just a little more of the oozing juices uh, compared to, to what I saw uh, initially. But still, there's some dripping blood in, in my cut as well. But this movie is not just a zombie movie. It also ties into some strange uh, pseudo-historical themes about uh, the, the Knights Templar being warlocks or something. Yeah, so you don't really need to know anything about the Knights Templars in order to watch this film. But I thought we'd tell you just a minimum of what they were and what they were not uh, so that you can uh, maybe have a little more historical understanding of what we're going to be talking about here, because this whole film is about uh, Templars who have come back from the grave that have okay. come back with a thirst for human blood or at least to kill people. I don't know. It, it's debatable how much blood they actually want to drink or if they just want to kill people. I don't recall them drinking any blood after they come back. The drinking blood I think yeah. is what allows them to come back in the future. Right. Yeah. When they are living, uh, nights. They're all about drinking blood and doing uh, bloody sacrifices and rituals. But once they come back from the dead, they're just about riding their horses around, invading the town, uh, climbing into your house and coming at you with a long sword. Okay. So what's the deal with these knights? Okay. So when we're talking about the Templars or the Knights Templars, we're talking about the poor Knights of Christ and the Temple of Solomon. This was a religious military order of the Catholic Church during the time of the Crusades. Now, their original purpose was to serve as protectors for pilgrims who were on their way to the Holy Lands. But as you can imagine with this sort of thing, a kind of power creep occurred. So after a while, they were given free reign to move across borders. They were made exempt from taxes. They ended up playing key military roles in various battles of the Crusades, sometimes serving as kind of like shock troopers. But um, in addition to military roles, their non-warriors also played uh, a kind of a key role during the Crusades, managing the movement of funds across the vast distances of the Crusades and setting up a kind of proto-banking system. So they became powerful, they made powerful enemies, and as the Crusades failed, they ended up taking a lot of the blame. And so finally, you have Philip IV of France, with the aid of Pope uh, Clement V, then based in France, uh, they worked together to suppress the order and also bring uh, these various false charges of blasphemy and heresy against them, things like uh, the idea that they worshipped a severed head and engaged in you know all manner of depravities. And uh, as a result of this, uh, the order was dissolved. Uh, some members were burned at the stake, I think 56 in total, including Grandmaster Jacques de Molay, and others were, uh, other members of the order were absorbed into different militaries and different uh, organizations, or they were just sort of, you know, retired. Uh, mm -hmm. So you can roughly measure the Crusades as, as having lasted from 1095 to 1291, and then the Templars themselves lasted as, a, as an organization from 1119 to 1312. But beyond their actual role in history, the Templars have clearly been an object of fascination for uh, especially people of a more pseudo-historiographical bent, uh, people who were trying to sort of like weave conspiracy theories through medieval history. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and you see, you know, this this is all over the board because you see so many sort of, uh, you know, trashy conspiracy uh, books that involve the Knights Templars. But but also, uh, I, mean, I mean, on two levels, first of all, you have people like Umberto Eco uh, factoring them into Foucault's Pendulum. Mm -hmm. uh, but you also have 
very, very, you know, very strong, very serious histories that concern the the Templars because they were they they were a very fascinating group that was that was involved in a very um, dynamic time mm-hmm. uh, of human history. That being said, when you throw in all these uh, accusations of, of blasphemy and heresy, you have the mysteries associated with them. Uh, you know, it, it just opens itself up to so many different conspiracy theories and crazy ideas. And yes, uh, it's a great hook for the creation of some sort of a movie monster. And uh, from what I again, I haven't seen any of the other movies in this series, but in this one, the premise seems to be, okay, these knights, uh, the Templars, they they were warlocks, you know, they did evil magic and uh, and people didn't like that. So they killed them. But, you know, what, what do warlocks do? They come back from the dead. Right. And that's basically the premise. That's all you really need to know. Uh, though, I guess the other key thing is that they're not only the dead, they are the blind dead. They cannot see. So they are functioning in this kind of sightless way that uh, has been explored in other films. I, th- I think we actually got into this a little bit with the hopping vampires of Mr. Mr. Vampire. Vampire. Yeah. Um, and and I and uh, what? The, I guess we have some contemporary films as well, right? Uh, isn't there something with um, Jim from The Office, like Don't Make a Sound? Don't don't be noisy. Uh, a, a quiet place. A quiet place. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, like, like isn't that, that a similar yeah. thing? Be quiet yeah. so the monsters don't get you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the the, the monsters are uh, blind, but they have super sensitive hearing. Yeah. So same, basically same deal. Sim- similar situation, and that that was another part of like the, the key sell on these films. Now, when I say these films, I'm generally referring to the four essentially standalone pictures, all the work of the the Spanish filmmaker Armando de Osorio. Uh, he did four Blind Dead films. The first was Tombs of the Blind Dead in 72, and that's basically Vacationers Encounter the Blind Dead. Okay. Then he did Return of the Blind Dead, the picture we're discussing here today in 73. That's Locals Encounter the Blind Dead. And then he did The Ghost Galleon in 1974, which is basically The Blind Dead plus a ghost ship. And then finally, he did Night of the Seagulls in 1975, which is The Blind Dead with a coastal setting and a Lovecraftian element thrown in as well. Hmm. I've only seen the first two thus far, uh, but I've been tempted. I've been tempted to get to go to, to, to go ahead. Like basically, there's a lot of debate on, on these films, like which one is the best and which one is the worst. <laughs> and you'll find connoisseurs land in different places. I've seen uh, I've seen people. A lot of people are like, nope, it's only the first one. I've seen people who say, nope, the second one, Return of the Blind Dead, is the best. Uh, some people are actually like, nope, the Ghost Galleon, that's the one. Uh, I think I saw someone say Night of the Seagull. So it's 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 kind of all over the the place, depending on uh, I guess what exactly you're looking for in an undead, blind uh, medieval night movie. What what is the forum for these debates? Oh, I don't know. You see just different different posts about these movies. Um, uh-huh. uh, I saw an okay. interview with the lead singer of Electric Wizard where he referred to the one he liked the most. Uh, I think he likes the Ghost Galleon the most. Oh, okay. Uh, so you know, it's it, it's all over the place. I guess it depends on 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 what your particular tastes are. So far, my favorite is this one, though. It's hard to imagine the other ones having human villains as profound as like the mayor and and all of the creeps in this one. Yeah, this one has a just a great lineup <laughs> of human creeps. That that's one of the main things I noticed about it is basically like essentially, except for the main character Jack and like one other guy. Every other dude in this movie is cartoonishly, cowardly, selfish, and misogynistic. Just like yeah. awful scumbags. 
Yeah, yeah. That the the elevator pitch I came up with for this film is undead crusader knights are back from the dead, but we can surely handle it if all the men in town are not dirtbags. <laughs> uh, but of course, almost all of them are dirtbags, so uh, the, most of the people in town are doomed. Now, uh, before we we move forward, though, I do want to touch on one other thing concerning just the nature of these films, uh, because cause one thing I was uh, I like to think about is okay when you have something like this occur, when you have a series of four films that are that are influential, seem to have hit a nerve, but are also unlike. Uh, so many other films, they seem to exist in isolation. You find yourself asking, well, what are these films? Like, where do they emerge from in sort of the, you know, the, the Spanish mindset of the day or, uh, you know, culture and politics of, of that period? And of course, one way of looking at it is, okay, well, uh, Osario was just, he just had it came up with a cool twist on the zombie format, right? Lean into history a little bit, throw in a little wild hunt. Maybe, maybe you've read Lord of the Rings and you, you, know, you throw a little Nazgul in there. I don't know. There's so many different ways you could basically come up with these same results. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about it. But the, the blind dead in this film are kind of Nazgul. They're, they're sort of ghostly or otherworldly undead riders with swords. Yeah. And have a, at least a, a different sensory realm that they inhabit. Yeah. So I wanted to read more about this. I was like, all right, somebody, somebody has bound to have explored this. And I found an article titled Spanish Zombie Films by Alex uh, Del Olmo Ramon, published in the journal Culaba. And the author argues that prior to the 60s and 70s, Spanish fantasy and horror cinema was just severely repressed due to, quote, the repression that was still being meted out by the church, Catholic power, and the harsh dictatorship imposed by General Franco. Another element that they point out is that in 1964, Spain's New Standards for Film Development initiative opened the door for co-productions and the international growth of, of Spanish cinema. And then on top of that, there was a big corruption case at the time involving loans to Spanish cinema production. So for both reasons, low-budget horror movies were suddenly just a smart investment. Uh, mm-hmm. They point out that despite the fact that Spanish horror and fantasy films only numbered something like 300 or so during the 60s and 70s total, uh, almost a hundred films were shot between sixty nine and seventy three. So the idea is cheap movies, cheap thrills, immediately profitable. But in all of that, I think the thing that I latched onto the most was this idea that uh, you know this insight about state and church repression uh, being uh, you know you know because ultimately with this film we have these horrifying creatures of the church that rise up against the townsfolk and corrupt politicians are ultimately powerless to stop them. Now, of course, I think if you were going to try to defend this movie against charges of blasphemy or something, you would say that like, oh, well, they're not uh, the knights in this movie are not true Christians. They're they're devil worshipers in secret. Right, right. Though, though apparently I was reading that um, he was very concerned. There were a number of challenges to making this film and pretty much all the films that Osario did. But uh, in the first film, if you go back and watch it, you'll see that the the the, Tim, the Templars, the uh, the blind dead, all clearly have not a not a cross on their chest, not a, a Templar cross, but instead they have the Ankh uh, on, mm. on their chest instead, and part, and that was in part a direct choice to try and prevent. Uh, you know, accusations of, um, of, of inappropriateness uh, because he didn't, he was like, oh, I don't want to shoot this film. And then they're going to come back and say, I'm sorry, you have to take all the parts with the blind dead out. Uh, so he right. thought it was safer to just go with an alternate, uh, you know, crucifix design. So these knights just happen to be followers of the Egyptian religion or something. Well, remember, part of the plot is that they went off uh, to foreign lands and they okay. they learned foreign concepts, uh, including the secret of immortality. 
it's not a very good form of immortality. This is something I've wanted to bring up about a number of uh, movies that have some kind of demonic figure, vampire, zombie, whatever, uh, that says, you fools, you know, you, you can strike me down, but I will come back from the grave. I will live forever. But in almost every case, it looks like the form they get to come back in, their immortality does not look very pleasant for them. Uh, I mean, are are they having a good time being these rotted corpses that are having to chase down the villagers? I mean, it it doesn't really seem like functional immortality. It just seems like, well, your body can kind of come back and lumber around and do some violence. I mean, I I guess it's just the whole, uh, you know, trope of clinging to life. Of, uh, of of putting utmost importance on the the mortal existence, right? Uh, even if the mortal existence is reduced uh, uh, by it, right? I guess it's a symbol of a certain kind of imagined vanity, right? That you would. Mm-hmm. It's more important that you continue to be animate than what the what form that uh, that life takes. Yeah, but certainly these are some of my favorite, uh, like mad scientists and wizard characters from fiction, where they, cl- they clearly this was a terrible choice. You yeah. made a terrible choice, uh, but I don't know. Maybe they, they're they're thinking, "Ha, pulled one over on death this time." Should we hear some of that trailer? Yes, let's hear. Uh, I, I'm not sure if we're, we may even play the whole trailer, so just be prepared. Sometimes we play a clip. We might play the whole thing because it's a, just a fabulous 1970s grindhouse trailer. And I should uh, I should remind you that this is using the uh, the English title for the film, "The Return of the Evil Dead." Terror once again treks its legendary course, making your flesh creep with pleasure. Night, when the unliving rise again from their graves, you will tremble with the return of the evil dead. Their hell-born revenge, for which there is no assurance of protection, nor will you escape the fear the anxiety which the return of the evil dead provokes. A new high in excitement. Help me! The return of the evil dead. The Return of the Evil Dead with Tony Kendall and Fernando Sancho. The terrifying thriller of the year. Do not attend this film alone. We suggest you bring at least one large partner to hold you tightly. The lifeless horsemen will make this theater into a living horror. The Return of the Evil Dead. The return of the evil dead. You sure you're in fit condition? And don't scream. All right. Oh man, I, I love this trailer so much. Uh-huh. Uh, for starters, it makes it makes several promises or statements about uh, what is going to happen when you see this film. 
they're trying to get you to sign that contract. Right. They, yeah. they let you know. It's almost like the, the side effects list on a medication. They let you know that your flesh will creep with pleasure. You'll tremble. Your, uh, uh, also, fear and anxiety are going to be unavoidable. Uh-huh. You will get high. Uh, you should not <laughs> attend this film alone. You should bring at least one large partner to hold you tight. <laughs> the theater itself will become, quote, a living horror. Uh, I'm not sure what that means, but it sounds impressive. Uh, you need to make sure you were in fit condition to see this film. So I guess consider going to your doctor and <laughs> making sure that you're cleared. Uh-huh. And then also, don't scream. Not, it's a good idea not to scream. I guess it's in case the blind dead also infiltrate the theater. It's the opposite of the tingler. Yeah, well, the ting- that's right. The tingler, you had to scream you have to, to alleviate the growing monster in your, uh, what's your spinal column. I mean, in general, this trailer does have a strong William Castle quality to it uh, yeah. in that it's, yeah, it's making lots of promises about what the film will deliver and saying, like, I don't know if you're up to it. I don't know. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we dare you to see this film. Uh, oh, and then that's the other thing, too, that I love about it. I love a movie trailer that repeats the name of the movie multiple times. And mm-hmm. this one does it. It says, the, is it, some of you may have noticed this, the narrator says the return of the evil dead six times in less than two minutes. It reminds me of those great old radio spots for zombie mm-hmm. uh, that would just be like, zombie, ooh, it's got my arm, zombie, no one under 17 will be admitted. <laughs> All right. Shall we get into some of the people here involved in this film? All right. Well, you already mentioned the director, Amando de Osorio. Uh, yes. Uh, director, also writer, and he also did special effects on this one. So uh, he lived 1918 through 2001, one of the key names in uh, the 1970s Spanish horror resurgence. He was also a painter. Uh, he directed commercials and documentaries before branching into horror with 1969's Malenka, the Vampire's Niece. And he often employed inventive <laughs> ideas to, that ran up against budgetary frustrations and budgetary realities. So he, he's one of these guys that he seemed to always dream big and never had the budget to realize the sorts of effects and uh, you know visuals that he actually wanted. I love the vampire's niece because it just seems like you're working your way down the chain. It's like you got Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Dracula, the vampire's niece, um, <laughs> the <laughs> the mummy's second cousin. I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a bo- like like okay. Start small, vampire's niece, and we'll work the horror empire up from there. Right. Uh, apparently, he almost got Boris Karloff for that one, but it, it whoa. Fell yeah, it, I think it wasn't his choice. It was something that the producers finally said, "No, that's too much. He's asking too much." Now, as Ramon points out in that article I referenced earlier, Osario did just encounter all sorts of issues making the first Blind Dead film. He couldn't film in Spain as originally planned because authorities were concerned that filming a horror movie there might ruin tourism or hurt tourism. So he ended up having to go and shoot in Portugal instead. I feel like I missed something in the logic there. (laughs) What would be the relationship between those two things? A bit between the, the, I mean, hurting tourism? Yeah. Um, I, Ramon mentions that there were some other things hurting tourism at the same time. Um, so, like, they, the tourism had already taken a hit. And mm-hmm. then here, this filmmaker wants to come and do some sort of a, a sleazy horror film right next door. And they're like, uh, I don't know about that. So, he, he didn't, you know, he didn't want to risk it. He went to Portugal to film instead. Okay. Uh, and then, of course, there was the deal with the crosses, too. He was worried about censorship in that regard. So, that's how you get the onks. Yes. 
Uh, so, uh, it, but it's interesting to place this film at the very end of Francisco Franco's rule, which uh, ended in 1975, uh, because given all of this, um, uh, you know, you have to figure out, like, what kind of audience was this, was this film playing to? And Ramon, in his article, writes, quote, The Blind Dead series attracted two types of very different generations of audiences. The first were hardline fascists, and the second were young people who just wanted to have fun at the cinema. As Nigel J. Burrell noted, Tombs of the Blind Dead can be read as an analogy of the rising up of old Spain against the permissive generation, uh, but also the repressive fascism of the Franco regime versus the youth of the day. Mm. So that, that does sound, per, it's kind of like uh, I've read about the appeal of the movie Patton, about how it was able to be two different films to two different demographics. Oh, okay. So you can imagine, like, uh, so some very old conservative people would be sort of siding with the blind dead and and being happy watching them punish young people for partying. Mm-hmm. But you could also be the teenagers going out to see the movie who, you know, you're you're getting your frights and thrills from identifying with the teens who are partying and are being uh, chased by these monsters. Exactly. Now, Osario's final film was 1985's The Sea Serpent, which was apparently a, a kind of a dream project for him involving a giant monster attacking the Spanish coast. The cast ultimately included both Timothy Bottoms and Ray Milland, uh, but uh, the lack of budget once again frustrated him, and he, he basically retired after that film. And uh, I think he went on to, to use some, uh, he, used to, he went on to like, paint blind uh, undead Templars to sort of supplement his income, sell those to fans. And it's interesting that he apparently used those kind of paintings to pitch the film to begin with, because again, he, he was a, a painter as well. Hmm. Uh, and then he finally tried to get a film titled The Necronomicon of the Templars Off the Ground, uh, but that project never came together either. Now, the main character in this movie, played by Tony Kendall, is, I think this is a first for me in films, is a pyrotechnician. His job is that he's a fireworks expert, and I I cannot recall that ever being a a job for a main character in anything I've seen. No, I don't think I've seen it either. Uh, I guess it kind of works, because the whole thing is this this small town uh, that is supposed to be in Portugal— Mm-hmm. Uh, they're about to have this traditional festival that they have every year uh, in which they they burn Templars in effigy. Uh, so as is the case, often the case, you bring in an outsider if you're going to do uh, fireworks, you know, it's like some, it's not the <laughs> local fireworks guy. But in this case, yeah, it's not even, it's not just an out-of-towner. It is an American. It's American fireworks expert Jack Marlowe. This role was written for John Saxon. Uh, yeah, I mean, clearly, like this, this is what I was thinking, too. It's like, this seems like the perfect role. It was written to bring in some sort of a, like a B-lister from Hollywood uh, mm. to be your, your big star in this picture and sort of, you know, pump up, uh, you know, international um, uh, uh, viewership. But yeah, it's just played, it's played by a Spanish actor. Uh, but I don't know, maybe that was easier. I think this is an actor that Osario uh, had worked with before or ended up working with in another picture. So maybe, you know, the, um, the connections were there or the producers liked him. Who knows? He's a very handsome man. Yeah, former model turned actor. Did quite a few Spanish action films. He was in seven movies in 1973. Um, he was in a string of uh, Commissar X action movies in the 60s. And he went on to do a lot of spaghetti Western work. He was in some Jalo films. He was in Mario Bava's The Whip in the Body. So he seemed to, to, to have wound up in just about every genre of film possible uh, at that time. 
Now, as we mentioned, apart from the main character uh, played by Tony Kendall here, basically all of the other dudes in the movie are just these unbelievable like creeps and dirt bags. And I'd mm. say that the one at the top of the heap is good old Mayor Duncan, yes. uh, who is played by someone named Fernando Sancho, who uh, I, I, I want to give a bouquet of flowers to this man. Like he, <laughs> he does not hold back. He was like, you know, he is committed to making the audience hate him more than they have hated anyone ever. Yes. Yeah. He is a total heel. Um, he's basically, I was thinking about this as we were putting the notes together. He's, he's everything Mayor Quimby is on the Simpsons, except, mm. uh, you know, the, like the 1970s, uh, small Portuguese or Spanish town version of that. Yeah. Uh, but without the charm that makes yeah, no uh, charm. Mayor Quimby Zero sometimes charm. lovable. Yeah. Yeah. This uh, guy's not, a, not a, watering the, the plants in his closet and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This, this guy's a, a selfish brute. Um, the actor himself, uh, Fernando Sancho, he uh, he worked in a lot of spaghetti westerns, uh, you know that sort of film. Apparently, he has an uncredited role in 1962's Lawrence of Arabia, uh, but uh, this this seems to be I, I don't know as far as movies I've seen him in, this is his crowning achievement. Now his character has a fiance, and she's a major character in this, uh, and that is uh, Vivian, the mayor's fiance, played by uh, Esperanza Roy, born 1935, and as of this recording, I think she's still still alive. I'd say she's the other main character apart from uh, from Jack Marlowe, Tony Kendall. Yeah, yeah, she's our. I don't know if you want to call her the heroine, um, or or just the the love interest, but I don't know. She's not. It's not the worst role that you could imagine in a film of this caliber you know she's she's not a complete damsel in distress like she seems she has a certain amount of strength and character to her um and uh and uh, apparently she i haven't i don't think i've seen her in anything else but i've read that she uh, she has a, a chance to showcase her skills more in films like 1973's a candle for the devil uh but she was a spanish actor trained uh, dancer and then i think later she was married to a an important spanish film producer hmm. Now, if you have a character like Mayor Duncan, you, you got to have a thug. And right. uh, the Henchman. thug in this film is Howard, played by Frank Brana. Uh, another exquisite scumbag. Yeah, lived 1934 through 2012. And this guy has been in a, a number of Spanish genre films that, uh, that we have seen, some of you have may have seen, uh, and that are just some exquisite cheese. Oh, wait, he was in some uh, Juan Piquer Simon movies, uh, mm -hmm. like Pod People. Yes, he was in Pod People, uh, which I think the original title was Extraterrestrial Visitors. That's from 1983. <laughs> but he was also in mm. Slugs from 1988, which is indeed a, 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 a nature attacks film about slugs that will either mm -hmm. you know, crawl on your body or crawl up the toilet. And then also a film titled Pieces from 1982. I don't recall if I know anything about that one or not. I th it's a chainsaw film, I believe. But, oh, um, okay. Which one is the one you've seen? Well, I, I've seen Pod People, and I think I've seen Slugs. Oh, okay. I think with pieces, I think I've seen pieces, but you've seen another chainsaw film that I sometimes get confused with it, like a Spanish chainsaw film, maybe an Italian chainsaw huh. film. Torso uh, is that the one? Like a really weird one? No. Uh, uh, well, I mean, uh, to be honest, sometimes I see these movies and I later don't recall what the title is because <laughs> they all have multiple titles. Yeah. But wait, which guy is he in Pod People? Is he one of the the, the trappers in the woods, or not? Tra I guess they're hunters. Yeah, hunters or poachers. Uh, I can't mm. remember which. It's been a little while since I've seen Pod People, but he has uh, this guy has a real um, Sam the Eagle look to him. Yeah, silver hair, a strong brow line, uh, and and he looks like he could do some do some real cruelty. Like you know, yeah. the brow turns inward that way. 
Yeah. Show that he has no heart. Yeah. So this is a guy who played a lot of police inspectors and enforcers, that sort of role. Oh, but hey, we're not done with the creeps. Oh, yes, because this film has a terrific central creep in the form of Murdo. And Murdo is played by Jose Canalejas, who lived uh, 1925 through 2015. Yeah, this is probably the most outlandish role in the entire film. Uh, Murdo is the caretaker of the, the, the ruined abbey, uh, out of which the undead, uh, blind dead, are going to emerge. Uh, mm-hmm. He's sometimes described as the village idiot. He reminds me a lot of Ron Perlman's later portrayal of Salvatore in the 1986 adaptation of The Name of the Rose. Mm. I would kind of describe him as a disturbed Stephen King lookalike with a with a monobrow. He does kind of have a King look to them to him, doesn't he? Um, yeah, he's oh man, th- this this guy's so great in this film. Um, and and uh, we'll we'll get into some of the differences here in a bit. But if you if you go with the Spanish dub. I mean, if you go with the English dub on this, you're going to miss out on uh, on the creepy voice of Murdo, uh, because the, the dub has a creepy voice, but the authentic Murdo voice is just excellent. Oh, I, I love the voice acting in this. So, you know, this movie got me thinking about how each language has its own standard vocal tropes for representing the voice of an evil or creepy person. And mm-hmm. there are some similarities across languages, but, but there are also some peculiarities to each language. And, and I feel like I really like the Spanish languages way of doing an evil or creepy voice. Uh, there, there's a through line between like the way the Templar warlock in this movie talks and the way Murdo talks and like the vocal performances you get from the NPCs in Resident Evil 4. <laughs> well, how do they sound? I don't think I've played Resident Evil 4. I mean, they sound a lot like characters in this movie. Oh, okay. Um, it, well, before we keep going, let's go ahead and have a quick sample of, of Murdo's voice. Uh, there's, from a, a particular spot in the film that I thought was just excellent. Si, ya la tengo. I'll reference what he was saying here in a bit, uh, but uh, this, this is a great scene where he's encountering uh, Vivian and Jack Marlowe in the ruins. Now, uh, Canaleas was a Spanish actor, and he seems to have played a lot of henchmen in a lot of westerns. If you just look up pictures of him, you'll most often see him with a beard and a cowboy hat. Uh, he even shows up in A Fistful of Dollars and uh, For a Few Dollars More. This, these are you know, Clint Eastwood spaghetti westerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, uh, he's, but this guy's just showing up as uncredited gang members in both. Um, but, uh, yeah, so he, uh, generally was playing, um, heavies, but he also directed a couple of Spanish comedies in the mid seventies. But in this, he's just a, a fabulous creep. Now, one of the Templars at the beginning of this movie is played by somebody who looked familiar to me, but I couldn't place him. But now that you've done the research, I think I know where I know him from. And that's Luis Barbu. Yes, he plays the executed Templar. He lived 1927 through 2001. It's not a huge role, uh, but you do get to see him drink blood uh, and or consume a human heart. Uh, uh, But this is a guy that had 125 credits and does pop up in some big Western films like Conan the Barbarian, in which he plays, quote unquote, red hair. I think I recall him here. Yeah, he's he's like a warrior type guy. Is he like one of the the sort of um, father figures to Conan after he is uh, abducted? Well, no, he's the guy who like buys Conan the Barbarian and trains him to fight as a gladiator. That's right. That's right. I remember him now. But anyway, this is a guy that shows up in a lot of Spanish genre films of this time period. 
Now, one thing I noticed about this movie is that it has uh, it has a very distinctive musical theme. It has like a melody that you can hum walking out of the movie. Uh, but it also the melody really reminds me of like the theme song of an anthology horror TV show. Like it sounds like it would be the, the theme song of Tales from the Dark Side or something. Mm, which which one are you talking about? The more melodic uh yeah the one that plays over the end credits okay yeah let's have a quick sample of that yeah see i i dig that it's it's very contemplative this is a this is a walking off uh, into the distance bit of music here. But then, of course, the other, uh, the, the, the other types of sounds we hear, the other main, uh, really the, the main character of this soundtrack, which you, I believe, heard in the trailer, is this kind of cacophonous, um, Masonic chanting, synthy, uh, just kind of a, like, just sounds from hell, like the sort of uh, synth music that would arise from the crypt alongside uh, dark riders in slow motion. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of evil laughter and sighs and, and echoey noises with digital post processing on them. Right, and this is the work. All four films, all four of the the Blind Dead films, is the work of Anton Garcia Abril, who lived 1933 through 2021. And that um, that Kulaba article I referenced earlier included a, a, an interesting tidbit about this. Uh, quote, Osorio's film is adorned by a soundtrack by Anton Garcia Abro, who did a brilliant job with limited resources, repeatedly recording the name of the production manager of the film, Tomb of the Blind Dead, 1971, uh, Perez Giner, and then running the tape backwards to create a sound treatment with the addition of a chorus made up of only two people. Wait, so was this, uh, was this in honor of the production manager or in mockery of him? Uh, I don't know. I guess it depends. <laughs> it depends how he received it. Um, but but yeah, that sounds incredible because the end result is very atmospheric, very very doomy and gloomy, and I think absolutely holds up. Uh, I I do think it is a shame that so, so many of these. Uh, especially you look at uh, Italian genre films, uh, there's been, there have been some really classy vinyl releases of those soundtracks. And, and mm-hmm. we've mentioned these before on the show when they pop up. But I don't think the music from the Blind Dead movies has ever been released in any format. I was looking around on Discogs mm. to see if it even came out on you know, any format back in the day. And as far as I can tell, it has not. Well, I could be wrong. I don't know if I noticed as much variation in the musical content in this one as you might find in, say, you know, the the Italian Jalo movies of the era. True, yeah, but you know, they could at least put out a single, right? Or yeah, or, or put it on yeah. a compilation. I don't know, uh, because ultimately, the other thing about it is that uh, Anton Garcia Abril was an acclaimed Spanish composer and musician. Um, I don't know if I gave his dates yet. He was born in 1933. And, and oh, you did, yeah. Died this year. So he's, he's, he was around for a while. Longtime head of the Department of Compositions and Musical Forms of the Madrid Royal Conservatory. And if you look him up on your favorite digital music source, you'll find numerous releases of his work. Uh, and he also did a number of scores from film and TV over the years as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's not a an obscure figure, but... Uh, this, like I say, this, this, these, these particular sounds have not been uh, re-released in any format that I could come across. 
uh, the, there was a there there was a bug in my ear when I was watching this movie, which is that one of the sounds in the sort of blind dead cacophony theme is something that sounds exactly like a sound that they make in that SNL musical skit, The Creep, uh, when uh-huh. they say "ha." Oh. Yeah. It, it, it did that multiple yeah, there, times. There is a shocking ha ah, sound that occurs. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if there's any connection there. Uh, Murdo would have been a is, would have been a great creep. He would have fit oh, right yeah. in. He kind of does something him like in the that creep wall. video. Yeah, he definitely could have done a verse. All right. Well, shall we get into the plot of this one a little bit? Okay. Now, this is one of those movies that uh, is is they're not going to take their time. They're going to kick things right off with high action from frame one. So from the very beginning, we have pitchforks, folks. Mm-hmm. Um, my version started with a bunch of 14th century villagers all armed with classic pitchfork torch combo, uh, rounding up Templars and a frenzied mob, uh, saying to them, you are evil warlocks, you must die, and then burning their eyes out with fire. Uh, and they give a reason for that, actually, when when they grab the Templars and they're like, you are evil warlocks, we're going to kill you. The Templars promise they will return from the grave. They say, we'll rise from the grave for revenge and raise this town to the ground. And when they make this promise, you know, we'll rise from the grave and get you, the villager responds, well, you know, we'll put a stop to that. We'll burn your eyes out and you'll never find this town again. Uh, it's one of those things that it's very like magical movie logic because what they do after this is they just completely burn the Templars, in which case I think their eyes would be burned anyway. But like first they poke them in the eyes with their torches. Mm. Yeah. This Now, I guess there are a couple of things going on here. First of all, in general, about this film being right to the action, since it is it's, you know, it's not directly connected to the first film. And I think basically all the Blind Dead films are standalone films. But you could make an argument that this is the prequel, that this is showing like where they came from. And at any rate, they dispense with any kind of, uh, uh, um, you know, mystery about what's going on. You know, it's the mm-hmm. blind dead. So mm-hmm. they're, they're not even going to pretend that there's any mystery regarding what they are or where they're coming from. They're going to go ahead and also establish why they're blind. Oh, in the other movies, is it like a mystery? Like we don't know what these things are. Suddenly they're just zombies riding horses, poking us with swords. In the first one, I believe, and I, I didn't re-watch the first one in its entirety, but I kind of poked around in the, the film, mm-hmm. you know, like zoomed around with the slider. And I believe it has a much slower rollout of what's going on. Uh, so it has a, a much slower pace till you start getting some, uh, some, some undead Templar action. Well, anyway, in this prologue, the villagers then burn a bunch of extremely obvious mannequins dressed as Templars, like like really obvious mannequins to the point where I was thinking, wait a second, are they just supposed to be burning mannequins? But no, I think it was that just not super convincing as humans. But hey, that's okay. Yeah. One of these things where we're, we these are supposed to be real humans being burned. But in the same picture, we see people burning what are supposed to be effigies. Mm-hmm. All of the of the same Templar, so uh, you yeah. know it, it it creates unfair comparisons for sure. Uh, but then immediately it's present day or present day at the time of the film, and it looks like the villagers are preparing for some kind of festival. So it turns out it is the 500th anniversary of the village's defeat of the Templars. So you see people out there uh, messing with some. I think they are Templar effigies, right? That mm-hmm. they're going to burn in the town square. Like that's what the festival is. Like, haha! Yeah. Remember when we burned these warlocks? Well, we're going to burn statues of them, and then we're going to drink, and there's going to be dancing and American fireworks. <laughs> 
Uh, but quite immediately, as the the preparations for the festivities are going on, we meet Murdo. He's sort of creeping and and peeking around a corner, and uh, and immediately some children are just like, "Hey, look! There's Murdo! Get him!" And yeah. <laughs> and what what is going on here? Yeah, because these kids they throw. I think they throw rocks, and then they they manage yes. to knock him down and just start kicking the crap out of him. Like it's a brutal beatdown on Murdo. And we haven't seen Murdo do anything wrong yet. I mean, we will later on, but so mm-hmm. far he's just this guy who looks kind of weird. And like a bunch of eight year olds are kicking this guy to death. Like the the implication is that these extremely evil children would have killed this guy, except a, a very nice lady comes and intervenes, and she kind of chases them off. Yeah, the, the, the brutality of the kids attacking him, I, I kept thinking about it, because this, this seems like a very intentional choice. Uh, but what does it mean? Or is it to make us feel for Murdo, like he's this outsider character who's kind of weird, and hey, maybe you'd be weird too if kids attacked you on sight and tried to kill you? Or or is it something about the town itself? Like, this is what the children are like in this town. Um, can you imagine what sort of uh, like a local uh, business culture, local mm. government, what the, the, that they grow up into. Like maybe this town is just, you know, cursed from the, the from the seed up. I guess. Oh, I mean, a, a large number of the adults are also very bad. Yes. Now, did you make anything of Murdo's monobrow here? We talked about in Mr. Vampire how the uh, the, the one eyebrow priest, uh, that we think that that eyebrow was supposed to be a sign of like respect, like that, you know, mm-hmm. the one eyebrow shows that he's strong, that he's serious, that he means business. Yeah. in this, I don't know, I guess it just kind of feels like they, they did a random assortment of uh, physical characteristics that would make their weird character stand out as a weirdo in a film of this caliber. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, from here we get the basic situation of the plot. This is not a, a very plot driven movie, so there's not a whole lot to explain in terms of here. We, we might just pick a few things here and there to talk about, but the basic situation is that they're going to have this festival here in the town, and the town has summoned an American fireworks expert named Jack Marlowe uh, to do fireworks stuff. And uh, he was hired on behalf of the mayor, Duncan, by Vivian, with whom Jack, the fireworks guy, has a history. And so she is the mayor's assistant and she is engaged to him. Uh, but she does not really like him, and she has summoned Jack to the town as their fireworks guy, presumably because she wants to reignite her relationship with him. Yeah, and and escape the town. Like, she's, yes. she's, this is a possible way out of this place, uh, which I think, you know, it, this place sucks. The kids are <laughs> awful. Yeah. Um, you got Murdo creeping around, and then uh, no, nobody knows this is going to happen, but uh, the dead are going to rise from the grave and start butchering people in the streets tonight. Right, and then that's what happens. Uh, while Marlow is there, the blind dead rise from their graves and set out on their quest of warlocky vengeance. Uh, now, it's a quest. I think it's a difference in the different versions of the film will give you different understandings of why the blind dead rise. Yeah. So the version I watched. So so to be clear, you, so you can't find this film just everywhere right now. It seems like it should be streaming everywhere, but I, I had to rent a digital copy through Apple, like Apple Movies or whatever it is. And the version I watched, the the, the the film quality itself was pretty good, but it was dubbed into English with no option for the Spanish, and. Uh, there were there was like one minute of footage cut 
with your version versus my version. So I didn't see some of the blood that you saw. I didn't see a woman's heart ripped out and, and bitten like an apple. Um, but uh, but then the other thing is it, it it totally changes Murdo's role in everything and exactly why the dead have risen. In the version I watched, it's um, implied or even stated through some of the uh, the, the added dialogue uh, in the the dub that. The Templars were Templars were always going to come back 500 years later, and tonight is 500 years later. Like this is just okay. a, something that was always going to happen, and Murdo kind of knows that it's going to happen, perhaps because he hears the sounds, you know, beneath the abbey, that sort of thing. But he's basically like, "Oh yeah, they're coming back, and I'm looking forward to it, and they're going to be my friends." Uh, and he, you know, he, and I'm creepy about it. He's more like Ralph in the first Friday the 13th movie. He's just kind of like creeping around going, you're all doomed. Yes, exactly. But in the version I saw, Murdo is more an active villain of the film who summons the blind dead by performing a human sacrifice in order to make them rise from their graves. Oh, yeah, yeah. In the in the, 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 the version you watched, and then I went back and, and watched parts of again, like Murdo is a kidnapper and a cold-blooded murderer who wants to who engages in blood sacrifice in order to have the Templars rise from the grave and destroy the town that he hates. And maybe he has every right to hate it. I think you can make that argument, but he is a kidnapper and a murderer. In the version I initially saw, <laughs> um, it's just kind of like, oh well, he's you know he's just there. He's he's here to watch, but he's not. He certainly hasn't killed anybody. Now, the version you saw, though, you said that he thinks they're his friends. One thing is he's hanging out when they first rise from their tombs, and he's like, hey, remember me? I'm Murdo. I'm your friend. <laughs> like, he literally <laughs> said that in, in the uh, the subtitles, at least, of the part I watched. Did your mm -hmm. version have that? Yes, it did. So he was okay. saying that, but the one area I noticed where where the dub was totally different uh, versus what he actually said was the the very end of that. So there's a sequence where Jack and Vivian go to the Abbey ruins and, you know, it's, it's the Abbey ruins are all grown up and it's, you know, it's, it's kind of green and lush. And so they, they start to reacquaint uh, uh, with each other. And yeah, she's Murdo, like, she's like, I still love you. Let's run away together. Right. And, and, and Murdo like, is creeping just here for hardcore on them. <laughs> yeah, Murdo is <laughs> yeah. watching from the bushes. Uh, and then they see Murdo, and they end up having a conversation with Murdo. And at the very end of that, uh, in the version I watch, in the English dub, uh, she says something dismissive to Murdo, and, he's, and he just responds with something like, oh, they never listen. But in the original... Murdo is super creepy because she's saying you should forget all this and just go get a girlfriend, go dance at the um, at the festival. And then he says in Spanish, "I already have one." And there's this evil snicker. And then a jump cut to Murdo murdering the woman that he has kidnapped. Yeah. Uh, so it's a uh, it's a really creepy moment in the film, and one that I'm really surprised that they cut because I feel like you don't tremendously sanitize the film by taking that out it's like it's already a bloody no, it's still grody yeah so i don't it's like unless it was just like the the murdo appreciation society where they're like no murdo needs to be a good person in this <laughs> film where uh i, I don't quite understand yeah you know, why you would do that you, again you're just cutting a minute off the runtime I mean, perhaps it seems incongruous because later in the movie, Murdo does appear to genuinely try to help the lady who saved him from being murdered by the mob of eight-year-olds earlier. That's true. And maybe the, they thought it wouldn't make sense for him to be trying to help her if he had already murdered somebody earlier in the movie. 
I guess so. I could see that being the case. Because, yeah, later on in the film, you're kind of expecting Murdo to, to turn on her or something, but he doesn't, or at least he never gets the chance to. Oh, yeah. Maybe he would have if they uh, if the blind dead had not cut his head off. Spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but also here we get a flashback where we learn that the Templars learned secret rites that allowed them to achieve eternal life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a couple of observations about this. Again, like I said, the, the immortality that they're able to achieve does not seem very pleasant. But the other thing is that the, quote, secret rites appear to be simply uh, doing a human sacrifice, drinking somebody's blood and then pulling their heart out and just like eating it, just biting into it like a big turkey leg. Now, to to complicate things, not only did my cut of the film not have the heart biting uh, scene, it also positions this human sacrifice right at the beginning of the film before Mm. (laughs) we see the villagers kill the Templars. So uh, it's interesting. Doesn't make a huge difference, I guess, but I guess it comes by virtue of also moving around that murder, removing that murder uh, human sacrifice part. Oh, I see. Okay, but whatever the mechanics in in any version, the townsfolk are having a big party. They're all dancing in the town square. Everybody's drinking, having a good time. Uh, Jack and Vivian are planning to run off together that night, and then the blind dead awake. They come out of their graves. Uh, We get a great subtitle that says Masonic chanting intensifies. Uh, Murdo is like, hey, I'm your friend. And then they run off toward the town to start knocking on doors and whacking people with swords. Yes. And ooh, yeah, there. So I, I saw one review of this film, which was like pointing out that the the blind dead are basically they, they get a lot of screen time. They're almost constantly yeah. on the screen, especially after they rise. And so you see a lot of them, and sometimes they look very good. I think uh, sometimes mm-hmm. they they do have that kind of scarecrow puppet appearance as well. I I think the blind dead actually do. I think they look pretty good, pretty scary, and mm-hmm. they would have looked scarier if you saw less of them in the movie. I mean, they're given too much screen time. This is a classic mistake in horror movies. You show your monster too much. Yeah. I think some of my favorite scenes are of them riding, though, because it, despite the complexities of having to use an obviously live horse, they mm-hmm. cover the horse pretty well. They put these kind of like same grave... Uh, weathered garments over the horse and then the the knights uh, the blind dead are riding these horses um uh, in kind of a slow motion effect with that super effective creepy music and then they're also shooting day for night in most of these scenes oh yeah yeah i noticed that too um which of course that's not unique to this movie i mean tons of movies especially movies we talk about on this uh on this show uh do day for night shots and uh, some of the ones in here look okay. Other ones are less convincing. Well, it's it's weird when I th- when I think about day for night because uh, I think as we may have pointed out before, it's harder to shoot at night, and in many cases, it's easier to shoot during the day and to make it look like night by underexposing the scene in camera or darkening it during post production. And sometimes you can kind of lean into the disbelief, like willingly disbelieve that mm-hmm. that you're looking at a daytime shot and just uh, uh, just go okay, it's night. I'll accept it. Um, and sometimes that's easier to do than other times in a film. But then in this film particularly, I found that the day for night shots had kind of an unreality to them that I kind of liked. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's like, oh, it's kind of daylight, but it's not. It's, um, it's, it almost has this, yeah, this weird nether realm kind of a quality to it. And for that reason, I don't know, it kind of works for me. 
Oh, it's definitely better than the ones in like uh, – when I think about the worst examples of day for night shots, I think of, uh, for example, the movie made famous on Mystery Science Theater, Werewolf. Oh, yeah. Uh, where it seems that they have shot nighttime scenes in broad daylight, not just daylight, <laughs> but like bright, bright daylight with like maybe a blue gel over the lens or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's it's really hard to accept it. It's like, no, no, like the brain will just not shut it off. Uh, whereas like in these films, it's almost like there's been an eclipse or something like it feels, it feels cosmically wrong. Like it doesn't feel like day, but it also doesn't feel like night. It's, it's, it seems, it seems like this is the sort of, uh, environment into which the dead might arise. So I end up buying it. Right now, plot wise as the blind dead continue to close in on the town square where everybody's celebrating and dancing at the festival, um, you get this like the mayor and all of his goons become increasingly aware of what's going on. And there's this strange subplot where they were, I think maybe two or three times even in the movie, they call somebody who's like the higher up in government, the, I guess Mm -hmm. the local, I don't know, the provincial administrator or something to get him to send in the army and save them from the blind dead. And he is completely dismissive of them. You see him. He's also just another scumbag. And he's just like, yeah, whatever. You're all drunk and just hangs up the phone. And I was wondering again, like, hmm, okay. Is this, I'm wondering how to read the, the 1973 Spanish politics of scenes like this. Yeah, yeah. This film, this feels very intentional because I think in the dub version, it's the governor they're calling. So uh-huh. you have the local politician who's totally corrupt uh-huh. and, um, and and cowardly and no help at all to the situation. But he reaches the point where he's like, I, I better call the next guy. I better call the governor. And the governor is is equally unhelpful and is, it seems seemingly equally like morally corrupt. Like it's uh, it's either stated or implied that he's hanging out in a, a room with his perhaps mistress the whole time. Oh, and yes. Just, and, and up dismissing them all as drunks and tells them to go pray about it at church. Yes, yes, that's right. He says, yes, pray for... And then he asks them to pray for him. Yes. Uh, they say, pray for us, pray for your leaders. Uh, but also, so the, the mayor, there's this great scene where uh, it, the mayor and Jack and Vivian and the mayor's uh, main henchman guy are standing up on this balcony and they watch as the blind dead ride into the town square and just start killing everybody at the big party. And uh, the mayor and I think Jack is like, I I sort of lost track of who was saying what here, but I think Jack is like, we got to go down there and organize them to fight. And the mayor's like, the mayor says, let the slaughter continue. I'll stay here. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's so the worst. And then you see him there. The, the, you see him just like uh, opening up a safe and cramming a bunch of jewels and cash into a suitcase. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which yeah. made me think of the uh, the episode of The Simpsons where Quimby is basically doing the same thing, where he's like, "I propose that I use what's left of the town treasury to move to a town without zombies and run for mayor. And uh, <laughs> once elected, I will send for the rest of you." Uh huh. Yep, that's about right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he doesn't get out. They try to escape on a car, but then they all end up getting. Stuck in a church. Oh, but before they do that, one thing I thought was interesting was that um, Jack and the other uh, henchman guy do briefly rally the townsfolk to fight the blind dead and confirm if I'm right here, Rob, I think the townsfolk here are using the exact same pitchfork props that the villagers from 500 years earlier were using in the opening scene. (laughs) Oh, wow. I think you may be right. Yeah. These are very uh, antique looking wooden pitchforks. 
Yeah. Some of them just have like two prongs. Some have three. Some have four. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I did not expect this film to have as much battle between the modern villagers and the zombies. They battle for a bit, but then the zombies sort of win. And then the main characters have to retreat to the church where it turns more into the classic, uh, you know, building under siege by zombies Mm. story like like the original Night of the Living Dead. But uh, but I really liked some of these scenes, too, because I don't know if they shot it in an actual church or, or whatnot, but there's all this religious stuff sitting around, like various yeah. religious decorations and iconography, and it feels like a like the storeroom of an old stuffy church. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like that, too. Um, and there's some funny stuff here, too. So, like I said, the appearance of the blind dead is a very mixed bag. There are some shots where they look very creepy. It's, it's effective horror cinematography. And there are other ones where I have to say they look very funny. And Mm -hmm. so like some of the funniest stuff is when they're doing stuff with their swords. Like when the main characters retreat into the church, there's a very funny shot of the zombie swords, like poking in through the window shutters and wiggling around. Do you remember Mm -hmm. this? Yeah. Yeah. Like they're kind trying to, pick the window with yeah. a long sword. It's uh, yes. Weird. And, and in fact, the whole way that the zombies hit things with their swords generally looks funny. There's this kind of stiff arm motion. Like the, I, I was thinking what it reminded me of, and it really kind of looks like the karate chop action figure arm. Oh yeah. Yeah, it does. It does make me wonder though. It's like the, the filming of this. I'm trying to imagine the, 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 the stunt choreography such as it was um, where you're, you're dressing some people up in these, these undead blind dead costumes, which I'm guessing might've been difficult to see out of. And then you start handing out the long swords. Right, right. You can imagine that uh, the, these, these actors were probably somewhat encumbered by their costumes. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so here, I think we also learn some things about some of the rules of the blind dead, right? Like I think this is when the characters start to figure out that they can hear, but they can't see and also that the zombies are are defeated by fire. Yeah. But that makes sense, right? I mean, uh, you had Templars that were burned at the stake. So it, mm-hmm. they, would, they would need to have a weakness to fire and to papal bulls. Right. <laughs> um, and so the, there are a number of things that go on here. Of course, the, the, the scummy characters continue to be scummy. The mayor at one point decides to use a child who is hiding in the church yes. as zombie bait. He gets, yes. he, he goes to this little girl and he's like, Hey, uh, your father is across the street with candy for you. Oh, he's also already gotten the kid's father killed. In yeah. A, yeah. In he already got attempt. him killed already. So he's responsible for her father's death. And he's like, and then he's going to use her as essentially a human shield to try yeah. and escape all by himself. Yeah, he's like, child, you run across the street. Your dad's over there with candy. Uh, I'm going to go over here now. But, of course, it does not work, and and the mayor ends up getting his comeuppance. Eventually, Murdo recruits the lady who helped save him from the eight-year-olds earlier in the movie to uh, escape through a tunnel in the church, though uh, that kind of doesn't end up going anywhere because they like, but he ends up poking his head out of the tunnel at the end and the blind dead are waiting there for him and they just chop his head off. And uh, they've got a funny scene of his head severed from his body and lying there on the ground. And he's got this creepy grin on his face. Yeah. He's got this signature Murdo grin, which is the first thing we see the first facial expression we see from him where he's smiling to an obscene level with half of his face. Uh, and so, yes, we are introduced to him that way, and that's also the way he leaves the world. Now, one thing I thought was interesting is that at the end of the film, the the good characters who are left, Jack and Vivian and the child, the, the little girl, 
Uh, they get to escape the church, but they don't really have to do anything. The the blind dead appear to have just been defeated by dawn breaking. Am I right about that? Yeah, it's like they have made it through the night. Uh, the sun has come up. The, ro- the, the rooster is cock-a-doodle-doing. And, of course, it's kind of like night on Bald Mountain at that point, right? Like the sun mm-hmm. has risen, the power of the undead, the power of the demonic forces uh, has ended. And our, our heroes, who now have this kind of uh, accidental family formed by tragedy that you see in films like this sometimes. It's like, sorry, yeah. kid, you lost both your parents in one just horrific night of supernatural terror, but yeah. Jack and Vivian are here, so it's, everything's cool. A victim of mayor shenanigans. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and I guess, like, Jack's the mayor now, too, right? I mean, is oh, that is he? I don't know. Yeah, don't know, by maybe. default, right? Yeah. <laughs> That is a part of every town charter, right? If if uh, all local government is killed, the nearest fireworks expert ascends to the to the office. Uh, it also means they're probably all three of them are on the planning committee now for next year's festival. So that's going to be a challenge. Like, how do you how do you bounce back from a festival like this and you know and still make sure it's fun for everybody? Okay, question. Um, how come the characters once they figured out that the blind dead operate by hearing? Why didn't they take their shoes off? Hmm. Well, um, I guess that would work. Would have worked okay for indoors, except okay. If it's an old church, maybe it's creaky. Maybe the floorboards would have creaked anyway. Hmm. Well, no. I mean, when they were trying to sneak by him outside, there's multiple scenes where they're trying to sneak by the the zombies in the street, but they're making noise and the zombies can hear them. It seems oh. logical. They should have taken their shoes off. Well, maybe know. it could have been could have been gravel. There could have been. Uh, Bits of fireworks left over. The fireworks have already gone off, I think. Uh, they could, you know, there was drinking and dancing. There might be glass in the street. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Got to be careful with your tipsies. It's been a big party. Yeah. Take care of your feet. But that would, that would make for a good scene in, in one of these films. I wonder if that's been done in any of these other films. Is that like in a quiet place? Do they ever take their shoes off in that? I don't recall. Yeah, I have to say this was ultimately, I, I found this to be a really fun flick. It, um, it, it, the pacing, I feel like, is pretty good, uh, especially for, for a film from this, this time period, uh, and to feature creatures, uh, get, uh, enemies that are slow and plotting. Um, like they're able to explore that kind of enemy without having it uh, result in a slow and plodding film. And then you have numerous uh, human characters of interest, most of them deplorable, uh, but never boring. True, true. Okay, but here, here's one question. The zombies in this film are not like the normal, shambling, completely brain-dead George Romero-type zombies. They can operate tools, meaning mm-hmm. you know they have swords, and so they can use them. And they can ride horses, so they've got something left going on in their brains. Should they have been able to speak? Well, I mean, I guess they don't really have the apparatus for speech anymore. They look pretty desiccated. Uh, but but yeah, it's a good point. They're not just mindlessly pawing at the doors. They're stalking around. They're they're also capable of just waiting outside. Uh, there are all mm-hmm. these scenes where they look outside the church when they're they're barricaded inside, and the dead are just waiting, like waiting them for, for them to make a break for it, uh, besieging them. You know, so I guess to a certain extent, at least some of those uh, like the military prowess of the Crusades has survived uh, in their, uh, their 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 rotten minds. <laughs> But they don't, yeah, they could have, I guess, they could have, like, taken their swords and, and written in the, uh, in the gravel if they, they needed to try and, like, lay out terms. Like, okay, look, uh, you need to surrender, but we will 
allow, I don't know, two people to go free. Or, you know, they, I guess they could have, I guess, but the thing was they had no terms. They just wanted to kill everybody. That's what they were here for. That's what they came to town for. They were evil warlocks, man. You can't yeah. reason with them. Yeah. Can't, can't reason with that. All right. If you're wondering, well, where can I watch uh, the Blind Dead movies? Well, Return of the Blind Dead, again, I found it on Apple Movies. I think there are some rips of them uh, just floating around on the internet on YouTube and so forth. Uh, you can get some of them on DVD. I think Blue Underground put out a DVD of this movie. At one point, there was a four-DVD set you could get in in like kind of a box set that was shaped like a casket. And I think there's a Blu-ray of, of one of the later films, maybe The Ghostly Galleon or Night of the Seagulls. So I don't know. They kind of go in and out of production. Uh, but if, if you want to get at your hands on a physical copy of it, you can probably find it. And digital copies are relatively easy to find as well. I think Atlanta's own Videodrome video store has at least the first two Blind Dead films. Uh, viewer discretion is advised. Yes. Yeah. Do do research these a little bit <laughs> before just diving in. Um yeah, because these are these are ultimately horror films out of the early 1970s. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and close it out there. Uh, you know, seal the sarcophagus for this week, but we'll be back next week with another film. I I think unless chance pl- plans change, we're doing another film from the exact same release year, so we're going to be stuck in the 70s again. So uh, if, uh, I hope you're okay with that, everybody. Um, if you want to check out other episodes of, of uh, Weird House Cinema, it publishes every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Uh, we're primarily a science podcast with episodes airing on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Artifact episode on Wednesday, and Listener Mail on Monday. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 